Well, I want to begin this morning by showing you the picture of something cute. It's called a spider monkey. Look at those guys. Aren't they cute? Uh, they are not only cute, they are fast. They're in South and Central America, and they try to hunt them or trap them. They can't, they're so spry, they can't get them. And so they found a way to trap spider monkeys. You know what it is? They take a clear bottle, a big one, and they tie it to a tree. It's lashed, so that bottle's not going anywhere. And what they do is they take a peanut and they drop it in the bottle. The thing is, the throat or the neck of that bottle is just big enough that the spider monkey can get his hand down through there. And when he grabs the peanut, he can't get back out. He is trapped. He is stuck. They found, actually, what they can do is they can drop a bushel of bananas right there, and the monkey can't get to it. He will not let go of that peanut. In fact, the trappers can then just come up and put a bag over the monkey, and he won't let go of that peanut. Can I show you a picture of a lot of spider monkeys? Aren't they a good-looking group? There's another one right there. There is a lot of gray in that beard. Dang. Oh, well. Sorry, monkey. Oh, well. We're, we're, we're like those spider monkeys. We have grabbed onto some false savior, some idol, and we will not let it go even to our own destruction. And we're going to see that in today's passage. We as a church are going through the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke 18. Today we will be looking at verses 18 through 30. That's a big chunk. But we're going to start with just two verses. We're in 18, verses 18 and 19. Look at this. And a ruler asked him. Now, obviously, Jesus, right? So a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That might strike you as a little bit funny. What's going on there is before Jesus jumps in to all these issues of idolatry and peanuts in a jar and all that stuff, like before that, he's going to say, let me make sure you know to whom you're speaking. This guy called him good teacher. Now, most scholars would say that was a clear issue of flattery and manipulation. In their culture, you would only say teacher. That was the title. There's no recording in ancient literature of them using the phrase good teacher. That's overkill, okay? I love being a pastor. A lot of you call me Pastor Rick. That, that warms my heart. I love it every time I hear it. What if you came up to me and said, good and wise, Pastor Rick? I'm going to be a little suspicious, right? Like, some, what do you want? What is going on here? And this is why Jesus takes issue with the word good in there. But there's something else going on. What, what, you, what we're going to see as we go through this passage is that this guy asking Jesus a question, he thinks that he himself is good. And, and so he's going up to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, you're good, I'm good, we're both good guys. Can you give me a little insider info between us good guys? Like, what do I need to lock down eternal life? And Jesus is going to say, whoa, time out, let's pump the brakes there. Only God is good. Only God is good. Now notice, Jesus doesn't deny that he himself, Jesus, is good. He is the sinless one. He is perfect. He made no mistakes, no sin. He is perfect. In fact, you, do you realize his own family, his own brother would worship him as God? Do you know how good you have to be for your own brother to start? Like, Jesus is clearly good. So here's a syllogism. 
Let's look at these phrases together. The first one is, only God is good. The second one is, Jesus is good. What's the conclusion of that syllogism? Jesus is God. Exactly. It's not hard, is it? So Jesus is God. And so Jesus is saying, before I answer your question, let's get something straight. I'm not just another moral teacher. Just not, I'm not just another religious example. After all, if that's all Jesus is, why go ask him for input? Instead, he's saying, I am God in the flesh, and this changes everything. It's really important to keep in mind. Because when you find yourself standing before God himself and you ask God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Whatever he tells you to do, Lord have mercy, do not fart around, you get that done. Right? Like you don't, you don't, you don't equivocate on that, you don't waver on that, you say yes sir and do it. That's why Jesus wants to make sure, okay, before I answer your question, let's make sure you understand who I am. Now let's get into answering the question. We continue in Luke 18, verse 20. Jesus continues speaking. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All right, there we are. Now we're on to talking about false saviors and idols and peanuts in a bottle. And and the first one that that gets addressed is the issue of religious goodness. Jesus is God. God is really clever. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. All this is going to be kind of revolve around the Ten Commandments. All right, you'll find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You'll also find a lot of them right in that passage. Jesus just named Commandments 5 through 9. Rattled them off. Boom, 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 boom. And it was very intentional. Now, he didn't mention 10 or 1 through 4. We'll come to those. Those are coming. But right now, just 5 through 9. And at first, this guy says, I've kept those from my youth. Jesus doesn't disagree with him. Evidently, this guy is a very, very good, upstanding, religious guy. I mean, that includes lying and honoring your mother and father. Are you kidding me? This guy nailed it. That's That's a seemingly good, devout dude. And Jesus is going to be on him like white on rice. Really? On that guy? Why? Because the standard is God's goodness. Only God is good. It's God's goodness, not man's goodness, that is the standard. And God has it. None of us do. Listen, there are two ways to be lost spiritually. The first one that we think about most often is you can be irreligious. Huge, nasty, horrible sinner. The advantage those people have is that they usually know they're lost. The really problematic one is the second one. The other way to be lost is to be very religious. And the problem those people have, and probably many of us in this room fit into this category, is that they're lost and they don't know it. They think they're really good. They think they're all right with God. 
This guy is going up to Jesus as his teacher, good teacher. And he's saying, I, listen, I know I've already got an A in your class. I've locked this down. I am a great student. I've nailed this. Can you give me any extra credit? Maybe I'll get an A plus, really solidify my A. This guy knows or believes that he is good. Here's what we get from that. Whatever you have that you think will impress Jesus, it won't. It just won't. This guy is holding on to his own religious goodness and he's a dumb monkey because he's caught in a trap. Now the second peanut that is on display there is clearly money. Money. So to tease that out, Jesus says, you know, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Now remember, this guy nailed commandments 5 through 9. But there's 10. What happened to 10? Oh, 10. That's the one about thou shalt not covet. That has to do with greed and materialism. Oops. <laughs> all right, so this guy's nailing five through nine. But all of a sudden, Jesus kind of trots number 10 out onto the stage here. See, this sermon is not about money. It is about idolatry and false saviors and peanuts in a bottle. But we must talk about money for a moment. And the reason why is because, one, it's clearly in view there. But secondly, because when you read that story about a rich guy, you think that's somebody not like you. But that guy's you. Listen, I know none of you in here think you're rich. You understand from the world's perspective, like God has a whole globe full of people. From a world's perspective, everyone in this room is in the upper 1% of the world's wealthy. You hear people talking about one percenters? Y'all can raise your hands. That's us. We're in the upper 1% of the world's wealth. And Jesus just said, it's really difficult for a rich person to be saved. That ought to get our attention. Why is it so difficult? Because wealth is such a tricky idol. It's so sneaky. You know what we look to money for? Look at these words right here. We look to money for security, power, control, identity, worth, glory, provision, comfort, fulfillment. All right, pause for a second. Look at me. Think about God. What do you look to God for? Now look back at the screen. God is supposed to be security, power, control, identity, worth, glory, provision, comfort, and fulfillment. Those are God words right there. And because we look to money for those things, and certainly if I have a ton of money, then I don't think I need Money is a very tricky idol. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, uh, he talked about three conversions. First is the conversion of the mind. Second is the conversion of the heart. Third and last conversion that happens to a person, Luther said, is the conversion of the pocketbook. Comes last. Because money is a very, very tricky idol, and there is an issue on the table here. This guy went away sad, for he was very rich. It is not that he had money. It's that money had him. See, when you grasp that peanut in the bottle, you think you're holding on to it. You don't realize it's holding on to you. That's the issue. It was destroying his life. I mean, you remember the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's say you are speaking directly to God and you ask him that question and he gives you an answer. Let's say he says, okay, um, I don't know. Uh, he says, you, you need to stop drinking alcohol to get in heaven. Done. Okay? Or he says something like, I don't, you need to stop wearing all jewelry. 
Okay, boom, done. That's what I need to do? Okay. Or he says, you need to, once a week, you need to go serve at Mobility Worldwide. Oh, all right, done, right? He is God, you do it. Now, what if God gives you something to do, and your response to him is, eh, never mind. That's what this guy did. You are the monkey holding on to a peanut. You're not holding it. It is holding you. Now, does this mean that we need to give all our money away? Like all of you are nervous waiting for me to answer that question, right? I get it, right? <clears throat> Maybe. Depends on what your idol is. Uh, if money is your idol, then out of love and mercy, Jesus Christ himself is going to challenge you to severely limit your expenditures, and he's going to challenge you to live a radically generous lifestyle because the only way you destroy a money idol is to get generous. That's how you break its grip. And so if that's your idol, yeah, Jesus might challenge you there. But here's the reality. There's a lot of different peanuts, not just money. And so it's not about money. It's about idolatry. It's about all kinds of different false saviors and idols to which we cling. Wherever you find life, whatever you can't live without, it's probably your idol. You'll recognize it because whenever it gets threatened, you'll get mad, or you'll get sad, or you'll get defensive, or you'll get fearful. I can't live without it. That is my God. I must have it, and that's your idol. And that's what happens to this guy. It just so happens his peanut was money. Listen, <clears throat> so far, uh, we have covered commandments 5 through 10 of the 10 commandments. You go, well, wait a minute, what about 1 through 4? What happened to 1 through 4? When you look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, five through ten are all about how we treat other people. One through four is about our relationship with God. When, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in the law? He said, love the Lord your God. The second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. And so go figure, when you look at the Ten Commandments, what you see is one through four is to love God. Five through ten is love your neighbor. So now Jesus has interacted with this guy on the love your neighbor part. Now he's going to shift attention and let's talk about the first part. See, this guy nailed commandments 5 through 9, but he failed on 10. Why did he fail on number 10? Because he failed on number 1. Number 1 is you shall not have any gods before me. That we are to love God, worship God, adore God, trust God, have faith in God, drop your peanut, grab him with both arms, let go of everything else. That's the first commandment. Martin Luther would also say that none of us breaks any commandment except we break the first. See that? You break the first first. Then you break other ones. It's all about who is your God. This guy broke number 10 because he broke number 1. It's not about 10, it's about 1. It's not about money, it's about who is your God. Pastor Mark Driscoll would put it this way. He said, it's not about behavior modification. It's about worship alteration. That's what it's about. Now again, does this mean we need to give away all of our money? No, it's not a blanket command for everyone. It was this guy's idol, so Jesus is going at this in that guy's life. But he is going to ask us all to give up our idol, whatever it is, to embrace the first commandment, to embrace God with both hands. 
Now, as Jesus is dialoguing with this guy, he gave him one thing to do. That's not true. What, what did Jesus ask him to do? He gave him two things to do. We tend to only remember the first half, give away all your money. But do you see it up there? He asked him to come follow me. And this guy said no. This guy said no. I just want a good moral teacher. I, I want somebody who will affirm my religious efforts, who will tell me I'm good just like he is. And Lord have mercy, this guy should not challenge my idols. That's what I want. But that's not how Jesus rolls. Because he is not like us, he is God. And out of mercy, he is going to challenge our idols and call us out of that. He's saying all of us need to ask God, what is the idol that I'm clinging to? And challenge us to let it go and follow him. It's not about money, it's about idolatry. And idolatry comes in many different forms and shapes. Like look at this list, if you will. Top of the list is money, of course. Yeah, that's one of them. But maybe your idol is respect. You've got to have it. Image, success, possessions, achievement, status. Maybe it's beauty, athleticism. If you combine beauty and athleticism, we call it CrossFit. So <laughs> do with that what you will. Se sex, alcohol, marriage, children, service to society. Now that's not an exhaustive list, but hopefully that gives you enough options to start to tease your brain. Like what is it in my life that I'm clinging to in this world that is my idol? Here's the really interesting thing. Look at that list. Not a bad thing on the list. Not an evil thing on that list. Those are all good things. Idolatry, surprisingly enough, it is often when a good thing becomes a God thing. It's when something good becomes something ultimate that it defines me and I must have it. Because you know what's happening? Whatever it is on that list, in that moment, look back at these words. You go for security there. Power, control, identity, worth. That's where you get glory, provision, comfort, fulfillment. That's your idol. It is your God. That's what's going on. And it's different for each and every one of us. But make no mistake, when you release your grasp on whatever is your idol, it will certainly hurt just as much as if you give up all your money. Because here's the thing, I, I think you're not following God until it hurts. Okay, you're not following God until it hurts. So what I mean by that is you might be a monkey holding on to your peanut and you're walking down a path. It just so happens that God's walking in the same direction. That's a happy coincidence. Your, your idol and God seem to be going in the same direction. This is cool. You will come to a fork in the road at some point where God says go this way and your idol says go that way. And you will in that moment know who your true God is. And if you, God is your God, you will break with your idol and that will hurt. Make no mistake, it will hurt. I don't think you're really following God until it hurts. Whatever your idol is. Jesus comes across a trapped monkey. And out of compassion, he cares about us enough to beg us to let it go. Because every idol will ultimately destroy us. Even good things. If we make them God things, it will be our undoing. Look back at this list. Everything up there. You make any one of those things. The controlling influence in your life, it will destroy you. I, man, I try to get this through the thick heads of newlyweds. 
I'll do it even during the, the, the ceremony where I tell them, listen, the, the way marriage is supposed to work is that you go to God to get your needs met and then you go to your spouse to give. We don't do that. We go to our spouse to get our needs met. That means my spouse becomes my provider. All the things I need out of life, my spouse becomes my God. And then I say this, your spouse will make a really crappy God. Make a good spouse, but a really crappy God. And moms, man, should I talk about your kids? Let's not do that. I want you to love me still today, right? So I'll leave that alone. But, but here's Jesus saying, little monkey, let go of the peanut. You're supposed to be running and jumping and swinging and free and living life. But instead, here you are fettered to a tree because you won't let go of that stupid little peanut. And, and he wants us to just let it go and grab God with both arms. Now, the disciples are going to understand that it's not just about money. And, and you'll see that as the last part of the passage is right here. Let's look at this. Starting in verse 24, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? See, it's not just rich people, right? Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. See, the disciples knew it was broader than just money. After all, in their day and age, a uh, religious rich guy was that equal blessed by God. Okay? This guy is religious. He's like moral and an upstanding citizen. He's a good dude. And... He's rich, which means God has favor on him, and he's not saved. Well, wait a minute, time out. If that guy can't be saved, then none of us can be saved. We're all in trouble. And you know what Jesus would say? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Impossible for you to save yourself. Possible that God could save you. Impossible with man, possible with God. And so what he does is he talks about the camel and the eye of the needle. Did you catch that thing? So the camel would have been the largest animal that they'd been familiar with in their culture. And then the, the needle, the eye of the needle is the smallest hole. And Jesus said something that was actually rhetorically funny, that it's, it'd be easier to shove a camel through the eye of the needle than to save you people. Okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. What Jesus is saying is it's impossible for you to do it. God can do it, right? What some people have done with the eye of the needle thing is, is they have speculated that in the wall of Jerusalem there is a gate called the eye of the needle. It's not in history and it's not in archaeology. But we're going to make this thing up. And what they said is that what you could do is get a camel to kneel on its knees and it could crawl through the eye of the needle. Which means I don't need God to do it. I can work hard enough and still somehow crawl through on my own. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, you can't cram a needle, uh, a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible with man. It is possible only with God. Jonathan Edwards would say that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You will either be saved by your works, or try to, and you'll die trying, or you will be saved by the work of the good one, Christ himself. And there is no combination of the two. It's either Christ or you. 
It's not about keeping the commandments, not even the first commandment. We'll break that one too. God knows it, and so he sent us the perfect one, who is the only one that kept all ten, including the first, and he would say, if you will put your faith in me, I will transfer my goodness onto you. Impossible with you, possible with me. And that is our salvation. Now I want you to know that as we let go of our false, silly little idols... There's a great, great payoff. Did you catch what Peter said? Peter's like, hey, Jesus, you know, like, we, we did this, right? Like, he's like, Jesus, you wrote it down that we left our houses and our families. Like, we're good, right? And he's like, don't worry, Peter, I'm going to hook you up. We're going to be okay here. And so Jesus finally gets into some good health and wealth preaching, some good prosperity gospel, that if you follow Jesus, you're going to be rich. Spiritually. <laughs> Spiritually speaking. Right? This is what I call kingdom economics. Kingdom ec- economics is, look, worldly economics is you give up money, you get money. Kingdom economics works differently. You give up money, you get something else. Okay? And, and so and what Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to be hooked up then. That is heaven. Someday. This guy is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, you'll have treasure in heaven. So I'll not only tell you how to get to heaven, but how to have treasure when you get there. It's going to be paradise. We're going to be in the presence of God. There'll be no more sin, no more stain. It's going to be awesome. That's then. But notice, Jesus also says, oh, no, no, no. Reward now, too. Reward right now. This is good stuff. So this is where we go, okay, so listen, folks. If you donate $1,000 to Redemption Chapel today, you will get $2,000 back this week, which is a bunch of crap, okay? Like, but, but that's how a lot of prosperity preachers roll because it's all about money. You give money, you get money, but that's not kingdom economics. That's the world's economics. Kingdom economics works like this. Uh, my family, we live in a small ranch house, a whopping 1,250 square feet. That is a dinky house by the world's standards. Uh, if that house burns down, do you know how many people would take us into their homes? You have no idea how many houses I have. You see that? Because you have no, I, I've lost family by following Jesus. You have no idea how big my family is. I go around the world on mission trips. There are people that don't know me from Adam, but they know that I'm a brother in Christ, an ambassador of Christ. I have homes around the world that open to me. I have family. You know how many brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children I have? I have this huge, huge family. That's kingdom economics. You will never outgive God. Not in this life nor the next. You'll never outgive God. Now, for you to grasp that and feel that, I, I want to share with you the closing from one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's an older one. You'll see that in the graphics, uh, the, the um, resolution. But uh, it's uh, from 1995, uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Richard Dreyfus. He, he plays Mr. Holland. And uh, this is a guy who wanted to be famous and rich by creating an opus. That's a, a, for some of you, that's music, okay? And so he wanted to create this thing, and he was going to be famous and rich, but he never did that. Instead, all he did, catch, all he did was waste his life as a music teacher, pouring into one student after another, after another, after another. And when he retired, they tricked him into an auditorium that was packed for retirement celebration. And I want you to watch this clip. 
Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life, on a lot of lives, I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside of our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong. Because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus, and we are the music of your life. That dude's rich, wildly rich. That's kingdom economics. It's kingdom economics. You'll never outgive God, neither in this life nor in the one to come. And Peter and the other disciples, they knew that. Why was it that they could leave their homes and their families and travel with Jesus? Why could they do that? Because of the first commandment. Jesus was their God. They loved him, and they were holding on to him with both arms. He was not just a good teacher to them. Now, what about you? What if this week you were to ask Jesus to reveal to you what is the peanut that you're holding on to? What is your false savior? What is your idol that you've been clinging to for far too long and you're fettered to a tree? Let me give you some questions to consider to maybe help you get there. What must I have? Like in this world, what must I have? Is there anything that you're unwilling to give up? Like if Jesus asked you to give it up, you'd say, uh, never mind. What makes you mad when it is threatened or sad or fearful? What inspires negative emotion when it gets threatened? Or what of this world is essential to your identity? I want you to answer those questions with Jesus this week. Allow him to bring your idol right to the surface so that you can let it go and grab Jesus with both arms. He loves you. He does not want to take life from you. He wants to give you kingdom economics. He wants to give you life both now and in the future. But he realizes out of love and mercy for you, he's got to challenge that idol. He's got to get you out of that trap. And he's very willing to do that business with you this week. I want to pray for you for that. Let me pray. Father, uh, you know I am, <laughs> uh, I don't pray for them, I pray for us. Uh, I am in desperately in need of the same. And I pray, Father God, for all of us as brothers and sisters, you would make it really clear to us what is the stupid little, maybe I don't want to be negative, I mean, they're good things. But we're making them God things. We're making them ultimate things. And therefore, they become stupid because they destroy our lives. And what is that that we've been doing? To show that in the Father, please, give us the gift of faith. Give us the gift of courage. Because letting go of that, I know, is so, so painful and difficult. So would you help us in that moment to release it and to grab you with both arms so that we would experience kingdom economics. Would you do that in our lives this week, please? I ask for that in Christ's name. Amen.